Welcome to the Two Top Podcast, the weekly podcast where we go over different topics in the world. I'm your host, Thomas Lance, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Berg. How's it going? You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Make sure to follow us on Twitter to stay updated on the latest episodes. Now let's dive right into this week's episode of Two Top. Hey, we have a new intro. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it well... That explained it all, so, you know, let's just dive right in. So, Matt, do you know, you know photography, right? Yes. Photography has changed a lot over time, but there was always this other side of photography that wasn't the 35 millimeter film into digital, into SLRs and DSLRs like we know today. There was the Polaroid. And recently, I've acquired a Polaroid of my own. I've been really fascinated with it, and I was like, what? Where does this come from? Whose idea was this? You mean the instant Polaroid camera? The instant Polaroid camera. The classic take a photo, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Exactly, like yeah. that type That's of Polaroid. So I started to do my digging. And what I found was actually an interesting story that is even better, in my opinion, than the Apple startup story. So let's just start from the father of the Polaroids, Edwin H. Land. He left Harvard freshman year to go pursue polarizations of lenses. Classic so, you Harvard know, dropout story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like, polarized sunglasses, it blocks light. He was actually the inventor of that. So not only did he do these cameras, but he also did polarizing lenses, and that's what he did with his buddy. And he left Harvard in 1926. So he created then the Land Wheelwright. Wheelwright was his partner. The Land Wheelwright Lab in Boston, creating synthetic polarizers. So time went on, time went on, and in 1937, he creates the Polaroid. The first, the well, the idea of it. The idea of, let's create a camera that within an hour, I can see my photo. It was actually kind of his daughter's idea, because one day they went out, they were taking photos, and the daughter said, Dad, why can't I see myself? Why can't I see the photo you just took? And he, and he thought, why can't you see the photo I just took? And then two years after this epiphany he had, he created the Polaroid. Now, what's crazy is he was the Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs actually drew inspiration from him and actually visited Polaroid headquarters to meet with Mr. Land. Mr. Land was all about, let's create not something that the people want but something that the people don't even know that they wanted. This idea of creating a product and immediately once it's created, creating the demand for it too. Yeah, creating a product and creating a consumer base. While doing research, I came across a quote and a fact about him that he never looked into market research because he wanted to create his own market whenever he invented something new. And he ended up making tons and tons of money out of it. So back on the Polaroid land camera, now I know why they're called land cameras. I thought, oh, that's an interesting name. It's named after himself. Mr. Land. So the first land camera was four pounds and it was invented in 1947 is when it first hit consumer level. And it got big real quick. And over the years, they slowly started inventing more and more and more. And then the big flagship camera which we all know today is the sx70 line of film which was bright daylight film good for sunny days like 160 iso film which is like bright Mm -hmm. it's clean it's clear and most importantly this is the polaroid we know and love it was the first time that they introduced the white borders around a polaroid photo oh okay so that's where this idea comes from this is an idea the heyday 
of Polaroid. As you know, today, Polaroid isn't in the news unless it's for bankruptcy. Oh. So the decline of Polaroid starts a little further back than just the 2000s. In 1977, they had a great idea. It's, hey, well, we already can make photos appear instantly. Why not video? Because video was the big fad. So they created the Polar Vision, which was instant video. The only problem was it came out at the same time video cassettes were coming out. And it was a cheaper, more affordable way to get instant film. Land didn't see this coming. And within four years of this happening, the major benefactors of the company kind of made them step down in a sense. Not directly, but were like, you should go. Mm-hmm. And then he would later die in 1991, no longer connected to the thing he created. The last time they filed for bankruptcy was actually in 2001. And since then, they've kind of become something completely different. They were bought up by a different company. And now that they've done that, they've actually closed a lot of facilities, actually all their facilities, except for one, which as they were auctioning off all their tech, all their factories all their stuff that they had uh, a group of three friends were like we're not letting film die we're not letting the polaroid die and they got together and they bought the last factory of polaroid really just three friends decided to purchase this factory and ke- well, and keep it going what it was doing before yeah. well three friends with a lot of money yeah i was gonna say they have to be <laughs> and they actually cre- they created in 2007 the impossible project which is the instant film you can buy today. Mm -hmm. And it's made out of the same factories as it was back in the day. So in a sense, it's a second coming. The problem is with this impossible film is they don't have the formula. They had to create it all from scratch. They had to go back and go to the days of Mr. Land and the heyday of Polaroid and go and recreate this. And I'd say they're pretty successful. I mean, I've taken some photos with their new film, and I think it's great. Sounds fun, and sounds like a headache to recreate that classic process, that chemical process. Yeah. That's that, incredible. They got it, because I know exactly what you're talking about. I have a, uh, a Polaroid printer that reshoots an image on, on paper. Oh, that's you cool. You can use that's it from cool. any camera. It's, it's a great thing to have, and it's really cool. It looks just like a classic Polaroid. Well, what's interesting about Polaroids is how they work, actually. Yeah, I'm very curious to see to know how they actually work instantly. So I don't have the actual specs of how they work, but I can explain the process to you. So back when we used 35 millimeter film and all that for our photography, what would happen is you'd take your film and once the roll's done, you'd send it to get developed. And through the developing process, they'd develop it, then they would clean it up and you'd get your photos. Now, the problem was in order to do this with Polaroid, you had to do all these processes at once right away in this film. So what they developed is these, it's all in the Polaroid itself. So when you get a Polaroid and you take a picture, what happens is the film starts at the back, it goes back to front and it rolls through these rollers that are really tight. And because of that, it pushes three film packets of chemicals and the three of them combined and are spread across your photo and once they spread they start to develop the photo underneath just like they would in a dark room exactly over time with more chemicals and a whole big process and in this case it's small little you said three chemicals 
Yeah, it's three different solutions, but that's the same thing as the dark. You have your developer, you have your uh, stabilizer, and you have your stop. Stop. So what's cool is it's all this, but in a small package, and it was a reusable thing. Except nowadays it's it's expensive. Like all old methods, they're all expensive. As in my dad say, just stick to digital. <laughs> so really, your dad says that. Yeah, well, because recently I've been getting into these old cameras and I've been collecting a few. <laughs> Save as, some money, Thomas. As, as you see on the shelf behind me. I, yeah, I, you're the I mighty sm- fine collection behind you. I have you. a small collection. Yeah, it's pricey. It's you rather just stick to digital. But it's fun to play with. It's fun to do something that people back then did. Back then, as in like 10 years. Yeah, 15 only years. not a, really that A matter long. of decades. It's not, not centuries, decades. No, which is kind of nice that people are still trying to keep it alive because it's it's an integral part of photography history the polaroid so to see it die off it's kind of a bummer but what's funny is as those 35 millimeter film cameras went to digital in a sense polaroid went to digital as well i mean look at instagram People don't realize, but all those Instagram filters and what Instagram is based off of, the reason it's square photos and kind of like the white layout is it's supposed to represent Polaroids, like scrolling through Polaroids. The old Instagram app icon was a Polaroid camera. It was Yeah, it was an old SX-70 land camera. Yeah. And that's why Instagram, in a sense, is the digital Polaroid, which is why a lot of people like it. Mm Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of turned into something else and people don't realize the connection between the two, but it's still there. And I think that's just cool to think about. And it's nice to see that film isn't 100% dead, but it's kind of has its own place in the world now. It has a place nonetheless. It's not something you take on your vacations and carry around with you. It's more of the artist, more of an artistic tool. We do see the mass consumer manufactured Instax line of instant instant film cameras either that's like fuji film or actual what's the other brand uh impossible project well yeah and Pol- do they go by the name of polaroid no because i know there's a polaroid company brand that manufactures instant film under the name polaroid really well polaroid has kind of it's kind of gone sellout culture at this point because their cl- creative director they hired is lady gaga actually Oh. <laughs> from my uh, little research. And the most recent thing they developed was a GoPro, pretty much. They made a action. I've a, seen a it. Live it's a cube. Sport. It's like a cube. And yeah. It's an instant. Yeah. So Polaroid's kind of moved away from its heyday, in a sense, of the innovation of the instant film. But that was their downfall. Innovation of this instant film was not something that people wanted anymore. It was all digital. It was all moving to something that wasn't physical anymore. That's why it's gone, Mm -hmm. which is why a lot of people say maybe it's better that way because why spend, like, for one set of four shots from the Impossible Project is, like, 20 bucks. Yeah. Which means it's, like, a a little under $3 a photo. A photo which, if you get it wrong... You can't just get your money back. There's no reason. Like if you take a photo with digital, it's like, oh, my settings are a little off. I'll just take it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, shooting Polaroid is, it's a raw thing. It's what you get is what you get, which is kind of why people liked it and why people still like it today. 
because it's what it is and you can't change it after the fact which makes it very almost pure when you shake that polaroid and you see that image appear and you're so curious to see what it is and what it's like that's that's a really cool feeling i know it is it has been fun to play with it but it's definitely just one time thing i'm doing just to Mm -hmm. just to say i've done it once but yeah there's a little history on polaroid i don't know if you're interested but i hope you learn something (laughs) i'm very interested i actually at home we have a late 30s early 40s um camera like an accordion style camera with all mechanical parts and when i first learned what a polaroid was was when my dad got it out and stuck it on the tripod we don't actually have film for this camera it shoots big big film maybe like like six inches by like four inches or something it's crazy you put this big thing in but we don't have the actual film it's really expensive to get so what you do and this is what they did back in the day they would stick like a polaroid in it as a test shot and so we have at home, we have these giant Polaroid packet little film sleeves and you load it into the regular film slot. And that's how you would test your shot to make sure the lighting's okay before you would stick the actual high ISO, you know, really sharp film in, in the camera. So for years, I saw this Polaroid film and we actually got, I got to shoot on it and the film was so old that it was, it only half the image appeared and half the chemicals, I guess, were dried out or something. And it was just the coolest thing. And that's like a real, real Polaroid before all the tiny instant yeah, ones, that's, you know? That's awesome, though. Because, yeah, that's what it was used in the day, like back in the day. Um, I know uh, Stanley Kubrick, he oftentimes, actually, he had a Polaroid as well. And a lot of photographers and a lot of uh, videographers, they would have this because you got an instant result. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, if I use this setting with this shutter speed and all this, this is the photo I get. And if it's what they want... Then they move to the actual exactly final thing, which is awesome. Being the kid I was at the time when I saw the Polaroid image, or at least part of what the image came out as on that big piece of Polaroid on the old camera, I was like, oh, that's it. That's awesome. That's like, it's one and done. And my dad's like, no, it's it's not done. We're going to stick the actual film in and shoot the actual photo. But that was like my instant gratitude. That's what the Polaroid brings. Yeah. I mean, that's what all all was based on it's like a little girl's dream to see the photo that was just taken i mean nowadays if a little girl wants to see the photo that she just took she takes a selfie and then looks at it immediately and her photos out swipes through her photos yeah her unlimited storage of photos but it's still cool to think about super cool but yeah polaroid cameras so matt awesome what do you got for me this week this is a little work story the other day, I got in an argument at work, and I, I'm not one to argue, but I knew that I was right when it came to this topic. So I'm going to ask you the question that spurred this. I wasn't the one who started this, and I kept a cool head during this argument. Everyone else was freaking out because they thought I was wrong. So will a penny drop from a skyscraper kill you? What do you, what do you think? Do you have any idea? I know there's been news segments on this, Mythbusters, articles online, YouTube videos. Have you seen any of it? Do you have any opinion? Isn't the answer No. You are correct. It will not. Everyone at my work, a little shout out to Sean, Colby, and Brian, and a little <laughs> bit of AJ, they all thought like, oh yeah, it would kill you instantly. It would strike you with so much force that it would go through your skull and it would be terrible. That's not the case. Now we need to look at the physics principles behind velocity 
air resistance, the drag coefficient, the gravitational constant. There's so much behind that. And the, and the guys at work thought they thought they knew this with their basic physics, but they didn't realize there's some environmental factors that can limit some of these physics equations. Well, I can assume a penny to the head would definitely hurt. I, I'm not saying you're going to walk away and just be like, oh, I think something fell in my hair. I think you're going to go, ow, exactly. I think I just got hit by something it's not really like hard. It, it's not like it's nothing, but it's not enough to penetrate skull or skin. It's not to that extent because there's limits, as I said. So unless a penny or any object was in a vacuum, nothing falls at a rapid acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared. That would only happen in a vacuum like space, you know, but there's also no gravity in space or gravity is partitioned to certain stars or planets. So you need to be in a vacuum on Earth to see that rapid acceleration. But in the, in the case of the penny, there's so many factors that are going into it when it's falling from a certain height that it's not going to continually speed up till it hits the ground. That's the common misconception. They're like, oh, 9.8 meters per second squared, meaning it's increasing. But no, there's other factors that go involved. So collisions with the air molecules slow falling pennies down. It's called a drag force. Air resistance opposes the penny's downward motion, counteracting the force of gravity. In fluid dynamics... And I say fluid dynamics, fluid can be air or water. It, air is a fluid. Okay. The drag coefficient, uh, it's a dimensionless quantity that is used to quantify the drag or resistance of an object in a fluid environment, such as air or water. And the faster a penny falls, the greater the air resistance it experiences. And so at a certain maximum velocity, that's the keyword, maximum velocity of the penny, the drag force becomes equal and opposite to the downward gravitational force, which is 9.8 meters per second squared. It can't go past that certain velocity with the factors. So it will eventually like reach a max speed. Exactly. That's its terminal velocity. It reaches its maximum speed, which is relative to the um, drag coefficient and the weight of the penny. So with the two forces balance, balance, the penny no longer accelerates. Instead, it falls at a constant speed. Um, pennies are flat, so they experience a lot of air resistance as they are light, so it doesn't take much drag to counteract their weight. Thus, if hurled off a skyscraper, pennies achieve their terminal velocity after only about like 50 feet, and then it won't go any faster than that. So even if you're on a skyscraper or a three-story building, it's going to fall at the same maximum velocity after that 50 feet. That's pretty interesting. Thinking that the... Um, the drag forces are the same, whether that's like thermal venting coming up the side of the skyscraper that would slow it down even more. So that's really fascinating that it's only 50 feet, you know, and it's a it's a penny. And you wonder what like the other changes, I guess, a like a quarter it would take a little bit longer because yeah. it's a little bit heavier. So after that point, the penny would just flutter to the ground at around 25 miles per hour. Only 25 miles Only per 25. hour? Only 25. But this is what... I read this in one article, and then I read a synopsis of the Mythbusters episode because they tested this. And in the Myth Mythbusters episode, I believe they said it was around 65 miles per hour, oh, okay. which seems really fast. But with something that light and fluttering kind of with a flat surface area, it doesn't... It won't break skin. I remember in Mythbusters, they shot it out of an air cannon, and they could shoot it directly at each other, and it would sting, but it would... It wasn't dangerous. Just wear some eyeglasses, you know, so you're safe and you'll be fine. Well, I think Don't like a tooth, though, I think like a baseball pitchers throw baseballs faster than that. Or I don't know how fast a paintball goes or maybe an airsoft. Probably over goes. A, um, probably over like 90 miles per hour, right? Faster than a baseball. Yes. Yeah, paintball. 
So, I mean, if that doesn't kill you, then why would a penny? Yeah. So it it's, makes, it's it, the same idea. It's all relative. We just have to think about it. So, and many people think that physics, their, their equations are like, well, no, it'll just keep accelerating. They think they know the extreme of the equation, but no, there's, you have to look at the whole picture. That's why you, when you're doing physics, you write out your whole equation with all the factors that are involved. Cause sometimes things cancel each other out. You have to keep that in mind. Well, that makes sense because imagine if there was no terminal velocity and people just, you just fell constantly. Could you imagine skydiving? You just go and you go get faster and faster and faster and faster and you never stop. That's a great example. I ought to tell that to the guys at work. Imagine it's like you skydiving. Yeah, because then by the end, if you kept on doing that acceleration, you'd be going almost maybe even speed of sounds traveling that fast it makes more sense that you'd eventually, the air resistance would slow you. As you were saying in the vacuum, things are different because if you drop like a feather, the big experience though is a feather and a hammer or something, and you drop them at the same time and they'll hit the ground at the same time. And I pulled that up on my computer instantly. I was like, watch this video of a feather and a bowling ball fall in a vacuum. That's the same. Would that happen in real life? No, the feather would float. You know, it'll take a little bit. But the reality is in a vacuum, they go the same exact speed because the gravity constant is the exact same. So assuming, according to my research, um, some the statistic says that if there were no air, a falling penny would accelerate to a speed of 208 miles per hour. I'm assuming that's from a cert, like an average skyscraper height. That's what it's taken from. But 208 miles per hour by the time it reached the ground. At that speed, it might very well damage your head. It, it'll crack skull, you know? Yeah, how much force does a penny have behind it? Did you find that out? Well, that has to do with momentum, and that's probably, you know, I guess at a at a certain speed, anything can damage anything. But I can't I can't tell you exactly. I can't do the math in my head. But if you, I think it's you take the mass of the penny times its like final speed of impact, and then like you can find out how many newtons of newtons of force. Yeah, yeah, newtons of force. So it would yeah. apply. It's a funny experiment to think. Do you think there's people who go up to the top of the Empire Empire State Building or just... Oh, every day. I'm sure they have guards up there making sure. And obviously, they don't want people doing that because it's just a nuisance, you know, falling. Or it could just, you know, getting hit by a coin kind of hurts, you know? Yeah. And I bet that just keeps pushing the rumor that pennies can kill people if it's banned of throwing pennies or any coin off the top of these buildings. They're just like, oh, well, it must kill people if we're not allowed to do that. Well, another thing I'm thinking about is if they throw the penny, would it even hit the ground? Because you have a terminal velocity downward. But if I throw a penny straight off the side of a building, it's not going to continue going straight. It's such a light object. Mm -hmm. I feel like the wind would eventually stop it at a distance and it just goes straight down. So maybe it doesn't even get all the way off the building. Maybe it like lands on one of the lower terraces or anything. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know. It's such a light object. I mean, just... If you have a penny at home, pick it up and feel it. How far can you throw a penny? Oh, that should be a challenge. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a limit. So, But you mentioned that pennies aren't deadly. We know that. You know what is deadly? What? Ballpoint pens. Really? Falling off a building because there's that surface area of if it hits something, the smaller the surface area, the weight behind it will exert more force per square whatever unit of space you want to measure it in and that could puncture skin so if a ballpoint pen were to fall directly straight down that might be deadly or it could like spin out of control and like 
be similar to a penny with that air resistance. Now I'm terrified. Now I'm just thinking of people throwing ballpoint pens out the Empire State Building like darts. Throwing darts off a plane down at the people below. Oh, yeah, that would be not good. That would w- kill you. Yeah, I wonder, would a, would a pen thrown out off the Empire State Building, would that puncture skin if it went straight down? Maybe. I think I, I saw a test and they did something from a similar height. And the pen that they could, they got one controlled drop and it landed in a piece of wood and it actually stuck into the piece of wood. That's, that's a lot of force then. Yeah. It's just that sharp... Point. I guess they used a pointy one, and we all know that the smaller the point where it reaches impact, the higher amount of force is on that point, opposed to a spread out object. Right, that makes sense. So that's why skewers are not big, big and rounded at the bottom. That's why they're nice and pointy. Yes, it requires the Ooh. least amount of effort to stab your uh, pork chop or <laughs> whatever you need to. <laughs> so all. yeah, common physics misconceptions explained obviously i'm no expert in the topic um it's just really fun talking about equations and wondering like oh is it really true is there limits to it because there's a limit to everything you know you just have to look at all sides well now i don't need to worry about pennies underneath the empire staple may i'll walk around with an umbrella just in case you know don't be scared to go to new york yeah (laughs) don't be scared of pennies in new york that's definitely not what you're looking for if you see one on the ground you're gonna wonder hey Hmm. take a picture with a polaroid save it for later yeah Well, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week on our two topics. See ya. This was Two Top, an independently created and run podcast created by Thomas Lance and Matt Berg and produced by Thomas Lance. Two Top is currently a non-funded project recorded weekly. For general inquiries or feedback, contact us at twotoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and join us next week for another Two Topics. Hey everyone, I just want to let you guys know that we are now on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand, and you can download the free app today from any app store. They have thousands of shows for you to discover, and you can throw them in your own custom playlist. You can find them on iOS and Android and the Google Play Store. They're on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. And you can stream all your favorite podcasts, including Two Top. So if you don't have Stitcher, I suggest you download it from the App Store. And while you're there, it would help our show if you left a rating and a review. That's Stitcher, radio on demand.